This is your host, Mark Lieberman of the podcast, The World According to Mark. Today, we're gonna to talk about the right to privacy under the Fourth Amendment. We're gonna talk what the fourth, about what the Fourth Amendment says, what it does, but we're going to focus our attention on what it's not doing very well in the digital age. To let you know a little bit about what I'm going to be talking about, Let's reflect on the fact that most Americans now live in a world where nearly every call or click online leaves a digital trail of where they've been, where they've gone. And this information ends up being stored in possibly multiple places, searched first by you, if you're putting that information on, but by others, including who you're directly communicating with, but also um, by prying eyes and the government and other vendors. And it can be stitched together with various kinds of algorithms to reveal an intimate portrait of your very private life. We don't think too much about that issue when we're surfing the net or when we're purchasing goods or subscribing to internet uh, magazines. But it turns out it becomes terribly important when we find out, first of all, that we've been hacked or when we see something suspicious on the internet showing that somebody had somehow managed to gather your private intimate pictures of your relationships with other people or when the government comes knocking and decides that you may or may not have been involved in some criminal activity or that you they use facial recognition and they picked you out of a crowd uh, black lives matter or january 6th insurrection doesn't matter so these are the realities that we've been facing for the last 20 30 40 years and they, these are the sorts of things that obviously were not envisioned by the framers of the Constitution and the writer of the Fourth Amendment. If we thought that the Constitution would protect us, we now understand that the Constitution is subject to interpretation. The judges that decide issues about the constitutional rights um, sometimes get it wrong, oftentimes get it wrong. And the Supreme Court that only takes 70 or 80 cases a year don't get around to necessarily making timely interpretations to fill the void. So that's, again, sort of the sad commentary about what we've traded off by having the convenience of carrying around a cell phone or having uh, Google or some other kind of instrument in the house that picks up all your communications. So let's talk about the Fourth Amendment and recognizing that, again, it was created in 1790 and it was created at a time in which most people had all of their important personal assets in their home or in a carriage, but they certainly didn't have it in the cloud or any, you know, some other vendor that they dealt with unless they walked over to the general store and purchased something. So the words of the Fourth Amendment 
are not very long, 54 words. And there are four nouns to pay attention to, persons, houses, papers, and effects. The Fourth Amendment reads the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And that shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by an oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So in those times, again, given the people's right to be protected in their own homes and on the street, that text seemed to be work pretty good. And it worked actually pretty well for 175 years. So let's break it down a little further. We just, just determined that the things that are protected are persons, houses, papers, and effects. Nothing in there about digital communications, obviously, but papers and effects could be construed to extend to that. What are effects? Well, they're all our stuff. There are tangible stuff, but they're also the intangible things that we get, again, from our participation in the digital age. And what are we protected against? We're protected against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. Is it any search? Well, only the reasonable ones. That will be the challenge. How do we determine what's reasonable? Well, some searches have to be done by warrant. Uh, in other words, an individual law enforcement authority, the police, they may believe that you or someone is a particular criminal suspect. So they have to be able to prove that they have probable cause or a reasonable basis for believing it. And they've got to convince a judge. But judges make rules and they expand and contract um, on what's protected and what's not. And so the searches can be done with warrants or they can be done as a result of exceptions that the courts find. And who are we protected from? Well, we're protected again from the government. Usually we're talking about police officers but there's other law enforcers, including the FBI and the CIA and various federal and state agencies. But the important thing to know is the Fourth Amendment only goes so far as talking about the federal and ultimately when the 14th Amendment was adopted as part of the Constitution, certain of the Bill of Rights including the Fourth Amendment, were extended to the states. But at the end of the day, we're only talking about protection against federal and state government officials and agencies. So how do we determine what is a reasonable search? Well, it's in the eye of the beholder, one would say, but there's two competing interests. On the one side of the scale is we want individuals to have some protection against intrusion and their individual's rights under the Constitution, and specifically, again, 
the Fourth Amendment. That's what the Fourth Amendment does. But on the other side, even back when the Fourth Amendment was conceived in much more tangible, literal terms, there was a recognition that there are some government interests, such as law enforcement and public safety, that would allow at least reasonable searches to commence to pick up private information that was otherwise private, but would assist law enforcement or assist some agency in protecting against crimes and also protecting against possible safety concerns. And we recognize that that's a real significant issue um, since um, essentially 9-11 introduced us to the Patriot Act, which gave the government much more power to look at individuals who could not be arrested because they were overseas and they couldn't be arrested unless they were extradited, but also persons that they might be in contact with in the United States. So moving on, I wanna talk again before we leave the Fourth Amendment and ask, well, how did we come to have an amendment that specifically protected against searches and seizures of our homes and goods? What, what, was, what was important to James Madison and others at the time that caused them to specifically carve out a Fourth Amendment right? Well, it turns out that in Britain, uh, the king used agents and officers to go around looking for possible treasonous or seditious activity. And sometimes they wouldn't have a good idea as to who was involved. So the king gave these officers or the officers took it upon themselves to get a general warrant, which was similar to the warrants that we talk about today to go after those enemies. But Ultimately, over time, the British courts in the pre-colonial, or not the pre-colonial, but the pre-revolutionary period said, well, those writs are contributing to abuses. People, homes and properties are being uh, ransacked and invaded. And we think that's not the way England should behave. Well, there were similar concerns on this side of the Atlantic because something again similar to general warrant but which was called a writ of assistance was being used to try to reduce the incidence of smuggling activity in particular and why was that a concern well the english were concerned because they wanted to levy taxes against every good that was purchased by the colonies and of course the colonies didn't have much manufacturing of any sort going on at the time. They were primarily agrarian. And so virtually everything that the colonists needed that resembled a finished product was coming from England or one of England's other colonies. And there were even agricultural goods that were um, grown or produced somewhere outside of the colonies. And when those goods came in, the British saw fit to levy a tax, which is how Britain got a return, so to speak, on its investment. But these writs, again, were abused. 
in the colonies. And we had numerous incidents in which homes, ships, carriages were ransacked. And this writ of assistance didn't have any time limits as to you know, when it expired. It didn't give any kind of detail about what they could search. It was just, you know, anytime they thought they had an idea of somebody who might be violating the, the, the tax laws and smuggling goods in, just go in, gather that information. Well, based upon the colonial revulsion of those writs, the Fourth Amendment was drafted to protect the seizure of tangible material effects or an actual physical invasion in a person's home. And again, home was what people really were honing in on, so to speak, because at that time there was a maxim that every man's home is his castle. And that meant in effect that you could defend yourself, you could defend your privacy if you ran into your house. And at least you were generally safe from uh, constables or other law enforcement personnel trying to come in and just look under the, the covers, look under the carpet, look in the ceiling, look in the, in the basement below and come up with something that they could say, your possession of this constitutes a crime and then just follow us down to police headquarters. So that was the overwhelming view, again, that led to the enforcement uh, over a course of, again, about 175 years. And because it was tied to property, this way of looking at the Fourth Amendment came to be referred to as the trespass doctrine. Trespassing means that you're on somebody's property, the property owner didn't consent to you being there, and so you're being there and forcing your way in was in effect, a trespass on the sanctity um, and the isolation that every person should feel at least in their own home. Uh, and, but it also meant at the time as it was uh, enforced, uh, you couldn't just stop somebody on the street and ask them to empty their pockets. That was, uh, even though it didn't involve a, a getting into your home, it was still viewed as a, as a trespass. And the courts, expanded upon that in a variety of ways. And this is all well before technological changes that had occurred and before you know, mass communication by radio or television or telegraph. But it turns out that even in 1890, there were a lot of people that were worried about the extent to which Fourth Amendment might not offer the kind of protection that people had come to expect um, after the British in effect were thrown out and that we had to be mindful about technological innovations even back then. So a fellow you may have heard of, Louis Brandeis, who later became an associate justice on the Supreme Court, he, was, he and his law partner were credited with writing a major art article on privacy and it was hailed at the time and uh, for years later, even to this day as being one of the first, if not the first articulation 
of what a right of privacy should be in the context of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, but again, we're talking specifically here about the Fourth Amendment. And he said a couple of things in this uh, 1890 article that continue to resonate today. First, he said that the makers of our constitution conferred against the government the right to be let alone, which is the most comprehensive set of rights and the most valued by civilized people. He also said, recent inventions and business methods call attention to the next step which must be taken for the protection of the person. He warned that laws needed to keep up with technology as new means of surveillance or Americans would lose their right to be left alone. Okay, so individuals just minding their own business should not be the subject of random uh, invasions of their pri privacy. But even in 1890, <laughs> there were methods such as photographic evidence or um, telegraphs and the like, and just beginning to have the telephone come into use. And Brandeis was a smart guy, and he said, you know, over time, there's going to be even more technological changes and we need to be ready for it. And we can't just interpret the constitution the way the framers did back in 1790. And that sort of mass communication didn't exist. So Brandeis got his chance to, you know, articulate that even further, but it took until 1928 when the Supreme Court was deciding the case of Olmsted versus the United States. And in 1928, uh, enforcement of police and other law enforcement folks were using wiretaps. So in this particular case, a uh, individual who was running an illegal liquor business during the height of prohibition he, instead of making a telephone call from his house, he just opened the door and walked out to the nearest telephone booth. And that's where he was conducting his business. Well, the question was, okay, he's not in his house. Does this fellow Olmstead and his accomplices, do they, do they still enjoy the right of privacy that we would expect them to have if they were in their house? Or does the government or the law enforcement folks at that time, do they need to be able to show probable cause and convince a judge that um, they should be able to eavesdrop on those calls by putting a, a wiretap? Well, that was the situation the court faced. So even though, again, these wiretaps were placed on the telephone booth, and even though Olmsted conducted these um, transactions with the door closed on the telephone booth outside of, you know, the public being able to actually, or law enforcement being able to actually tell what he, what he said, they could certainly play back the recordings that persisted for some period of time, because Olmsted was used to doing this. And the Supreme Court, not surprisingly, said, um, no, this isn't really the trespass that we were thinking about, or that 
the founders were thinking about when they crafted the Fourth Amendment. Uh, it required uh, something more intimate, like searching the person's home papers, physical effects. And so even though there wasn't a warrant, there was no search and seizure for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. Well, again, uh, Brandeis had a different view of it at that time. You got a reading of his point of view, but it would be many years later <clears throat> before the Supreme Court would move in a different direction. So with all this being said, let's pause for a moment and ask the question rhetorically, how is this 1790 amendment holding up in today's world? Where again, most Americans believe that their online and offline activities are being tracked and monitored by companies and the government with regu regularity. Indeed, um, the Pew Research Center uh, some years ago said that six in 10 Americans, six Americans, six in 10 American adults don't think it's possible for them to go through daily life without having their data collected about them by companies or the government. It's probably higher than that now. So we have Franklin in this caricature uh, holding up a computer which would have been helpful uh, in terms of the drafting of the Fourth Amendment if people could visualize a computer uh, back when the Fourth Amendment was created because then the words computer and cell phone and smartphone and all that could have been inserted, but it's not. And unless um, somebody is an absolutely classic textualist or originalist, um, that doesn't mean that uh, what's stored on a computer or what's stored in the cloud isn't potentially reachable uh, under the Fourth Amendment. But folks continue to believe in many quarters that the current laws, including the Fourth Amendment, don't really give them the kind of privacy that they think they deserve. And that when data is shared with third parties that you may not even know about just because you <laughs> you know, had a communication, so to speak, with a, a music service or a subscription company, then people have a right to be concerned. And they might simply say it's the government's fault. Uh, and or they could say, I know that's the case. So I'm going to refrain from uh, subscribing or getting doing anything on the on the internet. Uh, that I think could possibly be used in a nefarious way, either by law enforcement or somebody else that picks up um, a picture that you intended to keep private. Well, the Fourth Amendment may not be doing everything or a lot of the things that we want it to do, but is it even relevant today? Should we just disregard it altogether? Well, is it relevant? I guess we might think it's not relevant if our private information is no longer kept on our persons or physical homes, but is located in cyberspace. Or it's not relevant because advanced technology allows individuals um, in the government and elsewhere to track digital activity from a distance even without us knowing about it. 
or when it's even not clear what kind of information might require a warrant and a warrant would give notice as to what what and who somebody what, what, what was being looked at and who was doing the looking. So I don't think any of us really believe that uh, the Fourth Amendment is either completely useless or that it's covering the picture, that it's doing its job. I think most of us would believe that perhaps the Fourth Amendment needs to be reinterpreted in the digital age and that uh, there needs to be some way to, in effect, again, bridge the gap. We know that um, the World Wide Web was over 30 years old, maybe more than that. I can't remember who invented it, whether that was Al Gore or not. But um, some reinterpretation that doesn't deviate from you know, constitutional standards has to be undertaken and has been undertaken to breathe new life into the Fourth Amendment so it doesn't become irrelevant. And then the question is, what else could be done to bolster the Fourth Amendment protections, um, if not just by new Supreme Court decisions, but acts of Congress, and also actions that we ourselves could undertake to guard against sort of a freewheeling use of our private information. So together, all these parties, us, Congress, the courts, private companies, we need to determine how the Fourth Amendment should apply to data that's generated by smart technologies like cell phones and smart cars and wearable devices. And we need to understand that the fact that this data is being added into the cloud or available to various sources, that the government, if, if, if just the government, but not just the government, the government itself <clears throat> can make use of information if they can provide a convincing or compelling case that uh, that information should be able to be accessed with or without a warrant. With a warrant obviously requires a third party to make the determination as to how important that information is and that it's properly focused. Um, without a warrant, uh, ultimately, uh, if an individual is arrested and indicted and has to face the charges, face the music, there are ways in which information that was seized that violated the Fourth Amendment could be excluded and couldn't be used to convict an individual. So those are the things, again, that are actually happening and evolving, but perhaps need to be evolving with greater speed and with greater uh, comprehensiveness. <clears throat> so the types of questions, I think, again, um, some of this is re repeating, how do we strike the right balance between security and privacy in the digital age? How do we translate the Fourth Amendment doctrine in light of technological advances and changing consumer expectations of privacy? What constitutional and statutory protections should there be for data that's stored in the cloud and under what circumstances and with what constraints 
Should the government be able to get access to it? Does the government have to tell consumers or individuals when it searches their email accounts or access their data? And again, if we're talking about the internet and other worldwide sources of information, how does this work in a borderless world? How does it work when you have a social media like TikTok, and that's only one of hundreds, that the information can be accessed uh, not only by the TikTok company, but by the government where that particular company is located. In the case of TikTok, um, the Chinese government, which Republicans continue to remind us is a communist government, but there are other authoritarian regimes that can get hold of data as well. But those are the dominant concerns and questions that people that are worried about this are still asking us to um, understand. Well, there's been a litany of um, cases um, that have been dealt with by the Supreme Court. But again, as I said before, the Supreme Court only uh, looks at um, a small number of cases a year. But a lot of these decisions take uh, effect following Supreme Court uh, rulings in uh, state courts and in lower federal courts when the matter doesn't completely get into the hands of um, or on the docket of the Supreme Court. So we already talked about Olmstead. That was 1928, just to give you a little progression. And, and that was a case in which a wiretapping of a telephone booth was determined not by the court at that time to be a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Brandeis's dissent was significant, but he didn't carry the day. Uh, 40 years later, in a case called Katz versus United States, long after um, Louis Brandeis has departed. Um, that case um, went the other way. It was also um, a wiretapping case. Uh, and the court said, you know, there ought to be some um, constraints on the ability to access information that's not in plain sight of, of law enforcement. And that the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment rather, shouldn't be constrained just by this notion of a person's house is his or her castle, and that uh, we need to give a greater effect to the Fourth Amendment and pay more attention to the technological changes that allow information to be picked up, even when there's no physical presence of uh, the police or other enforcement agencies. So that case, 40 years later, after the Supreme Court had previously said, you know, it's, we're only, we said we were only talking about information in your house. Well, now we're, now we're saying wiretapping, particularly wiretapping, which goes on for a long period of time where it looks like the government doesn't have an immediate need for the information, but is trying to collect it over time. Well, that case gave some people um, some hope that uh, government would be constrained because the words that appeared in the majority opinion is that people have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And if a person had a reasonable expectation of privacy coupled with 
society had a reasonable determination however you could find this out was would be somewhat difficult but if society said oh yeah that's the sort of thing we meant when we said you know people have a right to privacy then the constraints of the earlier supreme court rulings tying it all back to property could be relaxed so people thought okay we've got some flexibility judges can make decisions in individual cases where it would appear that law enforcement and other government agents are going too far. But then it wasn't too long after that, in the next two decades, in the 70s and 80s, that the Supreme Court had a number of decisions in which they decided, um, no, we're going to narrow that protection. We think that not everything that a person may believe is um, reasonable in terms of privacy is appropriate. So one thing that we want to say to curb that expectation of privacy to standards that we can all live with in terms of law enforcement and public safety <clears throat> is if the information that the government gets hold of, searches and seizes, is information that has already been provided to some third party, then we're going to take the position that the individual has lost privacy protection for that information. And on the one hand, that sounds somewhat reasonable. It's like saying, okay, if you thought something that you knew or held was private, then don't put it on a, a public forum like Facebook or don't go into, you know, a um, television studio or don't uh, go into a stadium and, and announce the information and then say, well, the government can't get hold of that. So we're gonna we're gonna say that if you've already as an individual given that kind of information, to a private party, then the government has the ability to get that information as well. Well, that turned out to be, again, sort of a, a bridge too far because we don't give up our right to have certain information that we provide to certain parties in the course of doing our daily business and running our lives with the idea that that information then becomes fair game for any government agency or any uh, law enforcement individual to, to pick up. That's, that's, I mean, it's, it's a thought, but it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense in the real world. Because again, you're giving people sort of a false choice, either stop communicating um, and stop going on Amazon and stop going on Facebook and and even if you you know go to the bank and you give financial information then you know the bank has it so the government well that's where um, some statutory limitations began to have some effect which is to say there were statutes that were created we're going to talk about those a little bit more in a moment to um, to basically say there are some types of disclosures that people make that they ought to be able to make just 
again to live their life and that if the government wants to get a hold of those by uh, going to the company or the agent that collected the information or to some third party, um, that the fact that the information was provided in the first instance shouldn't be the basis for saying it's all now available. Your life is an open book. So a series of cases um, attempted again to sort of take the ideas of some digital privacy existing, but not take it too far. And so we saw that the Supreme Court sort of struggle with that idea of let's let's see um, in a particular case whether we think the government might have acted improperly and that they should be held at least to having to procure a warrant. And that was, um, again, one would, I think most people would argue that was, that was appropriate as new technologies are practically, you know, rolling down the assembly line, so to speak. Um, you know, it's one thing for the government to say wiretapping if it's prolonged and even if it's, if it's done outside of the house, the protections should prevail. But what about some of the newer technologies like GPS or smart cards or wearable devices like Fitbit? Or what about the information that can be discovered using drones? And then there's another practice called uh, automated license plate readers where police can set up a camera and scan hundreds if not thousands of license plates and pick up information. And they can do that in most situations without getting a warrant because they're not doing it in the first instance to track a particular individual. They're using it to collect data, which they can then compare with other data um, that they obtain in a, in a particular uh, crime scene. Uh, and what about the internet itself and the fact that even information that you provide to an internet service can be bought uh, or sold or disclosed to data brokers. So the notion is we have to have something that reaches those activities in some way. And so we had sort of a re-emergence again of what this so-called reasonable expectation test actually meant and how do you compare that to again the idea that in some cases if you give your information to a third party that you have diminished the um, privacy of that and that you don't no longer have the same expectations. Well the Supreme Court again was called upon to speak about that. And they came up with sort of a different spin on it. First of all, they did recognize that the third party rule in today's world is inconsistent with the original history and purpose of the Fourth Amendment because of the nature of the way we conduct our lives. Digital breadcrumbs, cell, cell phones, emails, all of that has expanded on the ability of um, individuals to interface with many different entities 
to conduct their legitimate business and personal needs. And the fact that this information could somehow uh, be just turned over to the government just because you turned it over to a private individual, Supreme Court decided that was a bit too far. So um, before the Supreme Court got an opportunity to relook at that, um, we were still dealing, and to an extent, we're still dealing with this issue of the third party doctrine. Uh, and we're still trying to sort of follow that through, again, in the midst of all these technological devices that are stitched together. So the, there are 800 million Facebook users, or there were at the time that this one study was undertaken, over 100 million Twitter users, 10 million Foursquare users. And that's a lot of folks getting eyeballs on a lot of what you possess. And we now see that the that private companies are able to use this data for all different kinds of reasons for marketing, um, law enforcement's allowed to use it for surveillance, public health information is available. We know that during the height of the COVID pandemic, many companies were using the technology to collect personal health information to try to um, slow down or stop the pandemic. Uh, and in that context, uh, it's possible that some of that information about your personal health, notwithstanding the fact that we have HIPAA privacy laws, was transferred to the hands of people that don't concern themselves too much with that. And I mentioned earlier, license plate facial recognition scanners. All that information is, again, sort of a tool for public uh, excuse me, for private companies to use and then under certain circumstances for law enforcement or to surveil against possible foreign and domestic terrorists, the government will try to use and access that information without giving um, notice essentially to who they're taking the information from because if they give notice, then that information can be eradicated, just like it was before all the newer technology. If somebody knew that they were being followed and potentially attracted, they would attempt to throw information away. You can't do that so easily these days, obviously, with computer, but encryption and other ways of trying to purge a, a, a database is certainly a possibility. So let's look into an, another area because we talked a little bit about healthcare and that is looking specifically at the extent to which our, our DNA is protected by the Fourth Amendment. Well, it turns out that there is a lot of use being made of DNA. Lots of people uh, in the course of medical history or when they're um, 
possibly becoming a, a, being vetted for a position in a company, they may consent to uh, a DNA sample being taken or, or uh, in order to uh, be able to apply to um, a service academy uh, that's being done. Well, we tolerate that and we believe that an individual can consent but what about if a police uh, officer stops a car and before they even make an arrest, they decide to get a uh, specimen uh, using a Q-tip to swab an individual's cheek. And that information obviously cannot be um, evaluated at that time. It has to go to a lab, but Suppose the person from whom they took the swab is later arrested and put into custody and the police are looking specifically at that person for a specific crime and they may or may not have gotten a warrant to secure the arrest or they may have just observed that the individual um, was at the scene of a crime or had evidence that some eyewitness had seen that person. But now there's this extra DNA evidence. Uh, and what's done with that? Well, the, the DNA has a lot of different um, important matching values associated with it. If the DNA is put into a, a, a database, then um, you can potentially connect the individual to some other criminal case. In other words, if the individual has previously provided DNA um, or if DNA has been collected at a crime scene, the cheek a swab that was used to take the DNA at the point of the arrest can then be compared with data, DNA data in a database and there may see evidence as in this case of Maryland versus King, the individual was arrested for one thing, but there was an unsolved rape case going back a number of years earlier. And it was matched against the DNA that was picked up on the swab and the individual is subject to arrest and trial and conviction for an unrelated crime. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, he was a criminal and therefore once he gets arrested for one thing, then he loses all rights to privacy. But there's a reason to be concerned about that because again, it sort of messes with the essential idea of, you know, even if somebody's arrested uh, for one matter, that doesn't mean that he's has no defenses against um, other kinds of uh, searches that are done by law enforcement to connect him with some other crime. More importantly, I guess, if um, the DNA matches are not all perfect, it's still a science that has potential false positives, false negatives, and flaws. Um, somebody else might be identified through that process and um, who wasn't at the scene of the crime. 
and yet the DNA is used to substantiate that fact and the fair the idea that 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 can be done without opposition under the Fourth Amendment is um, is concerning because again every crime that someone is suspected of uh, violating you either have to see it or have an eyewitness account or otherwise establish probable cause if you're taking a dna swab and matching it through a database and you're just searching you don't have probable cause to conduct the search if you end up getting a match and you try to access that information, you're seizing that information, but you, you're using information that was improperly searched to begin with. So that's one of the concerns, again, that privacy experts um, are looking at uh, because DNA is an information-rich material that's in all of our cells and it's very useful to create a DNA profile but it can be abused and improperly used. So the question is, what kind of protections? Well, the federal government and to some extent state laws in various jurisdictions have tried to uh, narrow the, the reasons why that information can be collected or how it can be collected and when it can be collected. Um, and there's no resolution of it. Another surveillance tactic which is being used is the use of drones. And drone technology is becoming less expensive and more efficient. And uh, when they were first conceived of as use for law enforcement, people said, well, you know, if somebody is in an airplane and they see something happening from the ground, um, that sort of activity should not be subject to the restrictions of the Fourth Amendment. But as we know, drone technology uh, allows a sort of a bird's eye view and drones can be uh, put into a position where they're literally only feet away from somebody's house. So the mere fact that they're not in the house, but they're above the house, does that, does the information that is gleaned from a drone's use of uh, a camera for in effect unmade unmanned surveillance does that mean that the the, the data and information which is uh, tr tracked using that device that it sh shouldn't be subject to fourth amendment protections that the police can use that information at will or they can gather that information <clears throat> from somebody else who was doing flyovers with drones in somebody's neighborhood that's obviously um, a, would be a concerning development. You mentioned uh, automated license plate readers before, talk briefly about how that can be abused. Uh, Body-worn technology, you wouldn't think that a Fitbit or an Apple Watch would necessarily be of importance to law enforcement because of the types of data that um, you can draw from it but these wearable devices can track a lot of data, um, including uh, users' locations. And some people uh, or some law enforcement folks have gathered information such as medical metrics like heart rate, temperature, 
and so on and so forth to create a, sort of a comprehensive picture of someone's uh, health and physical location and the extent to which they might be experiencing an elevated heart rate uh, that would be a sign of stress or nervousness that might suggest the person had um, some reason to be concerned about uh, criminal conduct that he or she may have participated in. Again, it's, it, it sounds like that not, that's not necessarily going to be all that useful, but um, in our increasingly technological world, information like that when combined with other information could be capitalized on by law enforcement to try to effectuate that to use uh, for an arrest and not do it without a warrant and not do it with even a uh, probable cause. Same thing is true even more uh, down to earth, so to speak, is with the um, residential and commercial protection of things like smart doorbells and, and um, privacy monitors. Uh, an individual should feel comfortable in being able to use a smart doorbell to photograph and also get the audio from someone who may be trying to get into the house. And if you're away from the house and you don't have the ability to witness what's going on, having a camera uh, that takes digital and uh, video pictures of a wide area uh, can help uh, create um, a sense of uh, protection for the individual. But in some cases, uh, the scope of what these uh, privacy devices, including even something we call smart doorbell, they might detect information from the general geographic area, uh, show that there was a car uh, having nothing to do with an individual that came up to the house, but a car on the street nearby, and they could use that and gather the license plate or other uh, information and use that for law enforcement. So that's, again, sort of a, a, a way in which the digital information that's gathered has no, no real bounds. So I think what I'd like to do is sort of summarize where we've come in this discussion. And that is, we know that the traditional ways in which the Fourth Amendment and privacy laws have been used and interpreted um, to give voice and protection to individuals from, again, unreasonable searches and seizures and warrantless searches and seizures and to give us some sanctity um, that even though we're, we've reached out to um, access uh, goods and services and information from other places, we still haven't not given up our right to have the, a lot of that information maintain its privacy unless or until a law enforcement in, agent has determined by other means that somebody may have committed a crime or might be uh, important as a witness in a crime. And the question is, how are we going to move in the direction of striking a better balance between our individual right to privacy and legitimate law enforcement needs? That's, I think, what we're 
we're, we're looking at. And I guess my first answer to that would be, first of all, I think we have to recognize that our involvement in these digital experiences and using uh, the internet, but also using smartphones. There's such a thing now as smart houses. There have interconnectedness of everything from the thermostat to uh, the telephone to whether an oven has been turned on. Those things are nice to have. They provide convenience. One could hardly say that they were absolutely necessary, but there is a market for it. At the same time, we are depending and putting a heavy burden on our court system and our Congress folk to try to um, prevent unreasonable searches and seizures and unreasonable access to those activities. But we, we all have certain abilities to either visit or not visit certain sites, to unsubscribe from sites where we're not getting any real benefit to be more discerning about who we decide to buy from, to look at the privacy notices and get a sense of how widely that information can be used, but also to recognize that even um, if the platform that you're on has certain privacy considerations, I haven't seen a privacy notice yet that doesn't say, well, we could use it here, we could use it there, you know, we can even provide that information for law enforcement it doesn't give you a lot of comfort, but at least having a sense of the porous nature of these various um, social platforms and networks should cause us to be much more circumspect about where we go with our digital explorations. At the same time, I think we need to expect that courts will continue to try to find ways to go back again to the roots of the Fourth Amendment. The words themselves have different meanings today. Property means something different than it meant back in the um, 1700s. And we believe that courts should not be hamstrung by too literal interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. And they should look at the facts and circumstances in each individual case and make a determination as to whether or not the search in terms of the scope, comprehensiveness, the intimacy of the information uh, was unreasonable. And hopefully we'll get to a point where uh, a better balance will be achieved, but I don't expect that to occur overnight. I wanna thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll do future podcasts that to continue to track this issue. And I thank you for your attention.